Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Essentials, written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic. Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at NewSociety.com. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, Go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. As I continue to explore the topics of natural building and ecological design in this ongoing series, I had the pleasure of speaking again with Mark Lakeman. Now, Mark has been a big inspiration to me through the architectural work that he's done at the community level and in exploring what it takes to design neighborhoods and gathering places that help humans to reconnect to their sense of place and overcome the colonial infrastructure that continues to separate us from each other and from lifestyles that include all the facets of healthy living. Since I've mostly studied design at the building level, Learning about ecological and life-enhancing ways of designing the infrastructure around us has been very eye-opening to me as I start to consider the larger impact that our built environment has on the way that we live and how our cultures are shaped. Now in this episode, we take more of a philosophical approach to design than in previous interviews where I focus mostly on techniques and methodologies. Here Mark speaks in detail about how, especially in North America and other colonized regions, we operate in communities that were designed for efficiency and expansion rather than the health of the inhabitants. As a result, even the basic grid of our streets and the zoning separation between commercial, residential, and industrial areas creates the lifestyles where all functions are separated and impersonal. One of my favorite enduring quotes of Marx from a TED talk that he gave a while back is, what good is our right to assembly without any place to assemble? 
and in turn we talk about some of the many projects that he and his teams have worked on to bring places of gathering and assembly back into disconnected neighborhoods and the uphill battle they face in navigating the bureaucracies and regulatory bodies that make it difficult for people to contribute to public spaces. We also explore ideas on how to renovate and rejuvenate our community infrastructure to reclaim our space and in turn become people of place once more. This is a thoughtful interview that links in with other conversations that I've published in the past, so I've put links to the other interviews that we reference in the show notes for this episode, including the original conversation that I had with Mark and his colleague Riddy Cruz from a previous season, if you'd like to go back and hear more about Mark's background and how he started in community architecture. But rather than giving everything away, I'll turn things over now to Mark. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Oliver. Thanks for getting together like this to share some stories. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to be able to catch up with you again. Now, it was almost, say, about two years ago since I spoke with you and your colleague, Riddy De Cruz. Um, so if anybody's interested in hearing more about your background or hearing some perspectives from Riddy from your team with uh, City Repair Project, they can go back to that original interview, and I'll put links to that in the show notes for this podcast episode. So let's jump past the, the background information and talk a little bit about the impact that civic planning and architecture can have on our lives and how it can affect the way that we interact or disconnect with our communities. That's exciting. And I live for this conversation. Okay, well, would you like me just kind of to start generally then? Yeah, go ahead and just kind of give me an idea of how you see those topics because I know that this is the world in which you work with kind of on a full-time basis. Okay. Well, I think, um, <clears throat> I think I, I'm always finding myself navigating uh, kind of different paradigms of seeing, I think like a lot of um, constructive activists, they have this reference in um, what they think or what they feel is an, a, an essential human way of being or essential human condition. And I think that might, for a lot of people, that probably boils down into uh, uh, an, a, a kind of a democratic or anarchistic um, sense, like that you should be able to participate and have a voice, should be able to affect your environment pretty directly um, and not be too encumbered by bureaucracy or needing to be part of a culture that has to ask permission. For me, as, a, <clears throat> as an architect and planner, I, uh, my, my reference is to kind of have a historical perspective and look at kind of over the sweep of time at the um, sort of village cultures <clears throat> that have emerged around the planet over time and understand that as place-based communities, they were able to really directly uh, affect their environment. In fact, to transform or alchemize their environment into a, you know, urban forms and agricultural systems without having without even being able to, or maybe even wanting to import a lot from outside of their bioregions. So my, my reference point is that the majority of human history, people have been working within bioregional frameworks to create the, um, the, the, the systems and the structures that they inhabit, the social systems, the, um, the architecture, the village forms. And as opposed to that, which which would, you know, let me just say more about that. I mean, in that context, you would presume that people are able to express themselves and as they're, as they're meeting their needs, they're solving problems. 
And as they're doing that, they're building their community because they're solving problems together and meeting their needs together. So they, you know, develop stronger uh, linkages and relationships with each other. I think a lot of people in their, in their sense of how the world should be, it, it's kind of based on a sense that that's been our history, but also that we're biologically wired to feel that that is, that is righteous and that is the way that we should live. I feel that way. So I bring that into my work within the modern city in the modern world. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly interfacing with systems that are really set up to serve um, development interests, you know, that someone can engage the land um, and other human beings more from a profit motive point of view, and then create landscapes that serve their desire for a return, as opposed to the people living there, you know, creating something that helps them meet their needs. Instead, uh, a lot of this, in my opinion, ends up being uh, kind of an artifice that looks and works a lot like how we would like to create landscapes, except in the end, um, the result isn't to build community, but more, you know, maybe to build someone's bank account. So I live, I live in that spectrum, between uh, that disparity spectrum between how I think I would like to live in the world and, uh, and then the world that we're living in. And I navigate between those poles, um, trying to figure out ways to elicit and re-express, re-emerge, help to re-emerge um, ways for people to participate and, and create and, uh, and connect with each other. And I try to um, sort of, you know, work with human beings within the system who also feel this way, even if they're bureaucrats, to humanize and temper the bureaucratic and profit-oriented structures that we find ourselves in, um, in order to help create more just relationships and and uh, and designs. So I, I think that's that's an overarching partial answer there. No, that's a really good way of putting it. But it always leads me to this question: when people have kind of a vision for what they want to achieve, I'm interested in knowing what you use as reference for healthy infrastructure and civic planning or community infrastructure that facilitates connectivity and that ability to kind of influence in a healthy way the way that you interact with the people in, in your daily life? Yeah, I've got a really practical answer to that. Well, um, yeah, so, so we live, you know, here we are living in the USA and uh, about um, 20 years ago, or 25 years ago in my career, uh, I came back from a series of kind of cultural immersions where I was basically out asking different communities and cultures around the world um, what they could see about the USA and what they could also see about me and what they would advise me and us to do about our condition. Because obviously there's massive challenges that we have here, like, you know, across the spectrum of so-called crime. Um, we sometimes have these statistics that are 10 times more distressing than other cultures that are related to us. And the answer that I got back was basically to, to notice, when I got home, to notice that we all live in this colonial infrastructure that is an expression of participation at all. Um, it's really designed as a development mechanism. And the practical, simple answer to your question is, to look around and notice that there's almost no public squares, 
in any neighborhood across the entire country. Um, and to understand, you know, the advice I got was to understand that there's this, this really terrible, terrible, like horrific absence in our midst. Um, that we actually have to travel across the ocean to visit villages where, um, you know, living and working is in close proximity, not zoned like American cities are where you have to transit the landscape to go and earn money, leave, leave the home zone to go to the work zone to earn the money to pay for the home zone where you barely get to live. So the practical response to your question, the simple one is we focus on restoring community gathering places to the American grid really the North American grid for the most part um, as a way of helping people not just to see that there's been a gathering place missing the whole time and then restore it, but also to restore the interactive vitality that is also missing and, and latent at the same time in every community. So we're saying, hey, everyone, wake up. Look, you live in the colonial grid. You're zoned so that you just are kind of this monocultural condition where everyone just lives in these these tracts where almost nobody speaks because there's no place for people to gather, but also by omitting gathering places, you're also omitting the stewardship culture dynamism that would be engaging in that space and stewarding it over time. And then you're also omitting the cultural rituals and celebrations that would be happening otherwise cyclically and spontaneously in that space. And then you're also therefore missing the automatic connection of living and working that would also happen. So we're politically disempowered by the absence of gathering place places. And then there's all of these other related um, really horrific outcomes that play out in the form of um, some of the worst public health statistics in the world. <clears throat> so our design projects, um, dozens of them going on at the same time, all have to do with re-engaging people to not just dialogue, but to physically create gathering places in their midst once again. Some of the forms that this takes are political, like we have new ordinances that we've been helping to establish across the USA and Canada for people to be able to literally create, recreate street intersections and turn them into public squares. And uh, that's based on the observation that in ancient pre-automobile urban fabric where crime statistics are super low and public health indicators are really high, the gathering place literally happens where people's pathways converge, you know, so-called crossroads of the village. We're basically restoring crossroads of the village to the colonial grid of the USA and Canada with remarkable public health outcomes and then impacts even on crime. So that's our main like leverage point over and over and over again. And it seems the, 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 the overall kind of project seems to be taking limitless varieties of forms in every project that we do. Now, you and I were speaking just a little bit before we started recording this episode about how we've both done a good bit of traveling. And my reference to some of the things that you were mentioning, like having a common town square and places of assembly kind of built into the infrastructure have often been in places where colonialization has really left a mark. Actually, the last time that you and I spoke, I was living in Guatemala, actually up until recently. And wow. even in very small towns there, the central church um, and the government building usually surround uh, a public park 
And even in small towns, you'll find this configuration as a leftover of Spanish colonial culture. And now that I'm actually yeah. in Spain, seeing where this, you know, uh, civic design kind of originated, or at least before it was exported over to those areas, I definitely notice a difference in the way that people assemble and the way that towns get together and practice ceremonies and rituals. Um, you know, even though it's very different from the original colonizing culture that brought it over to that area. But that being said, there are yeah. still a lot of disconnects that come even from that. What have you noticed about the way that other types of colonial infrastructure has, have either hurt or facilitated these healthier community infrastructures? Wow, great, great, huge question. Uh, I got a couple of things just to start with. First of all, well, you've just touched down on um, a really important kind of parallel to the North American grid. Um, so north of the border that we share with Mexico, we have the National Land Ordinance in the USA, and then in Canada, it's the Dominion Land Survey. And in both cases, it's uh, a proscription or, yeah, really it proscribes it. Both of those, both of those systems, just like south of the border, where you have the law of the Indies that the Spanish enacted to create plazas and zocalos in all of the cities and towns, even in Guatemala where you were, um, you have basically two different kinds of ordinances. The, the ones in the USA and Canada are essentially the same, and they're very similar and profoundly importantly different from the law of the Indies that affected places like Guatemala. The similarity is that they are all designed to eliminate and wipe out pre-existing cultural patterns, literally to wipe out pathways and to wipe out mentalities too. Like if, if, if the native population had some kind of sensibility about how they saw themselves in relation to the land that was expressed in their urban form, that had to be eliminated. And so with the National Land Ordinance of the USA or the Law of the Indies of Spain, um, you were basically saying, first of all, fundamentally, the land is now a commodity and we're going to cut it up according to this giant grid infrastructure with certain key reference points for surveying, which is, you know, kind of how it begins to be laid out. But fundamentally, the land is seen as a commodity. And then, you know, within that space, time, and even life force, including human beings, as labor force is also part of what is enacted within the plan. So that's the ways that they're similar to see that the world is now for sale in this colonial infrastructure that we will use as an extraction design, you know, that will enable us to take the proceeds and reap them and bring them back to the motherland. And, you know, in the case of a lot of the Indies, Spain intended to hold all these colonies and then just reap reap whatever benefit they could from the people in the place and bring it back to Spain as we know they did. The difference though is that Spain mandated that there be a plaza and Zocalo in every city and town. In fact, um, you know, per population, there would be multiple plazas and Zocalos. And you can see some of the intent or the malintent um, in, the, in the way that plazas and Zocalos tend to be bookended by um, government institutions that are able to oversee the space and can kind of control it. You can also see it in the way that <clears throat> plazas and zocalos 
in a beautiful way, they integrate planting, but they also um, really limit the scale of gathering open spaces within plazas and zocalos. In fact, dividing up the space oftentimes with statues and pavilions to make it so that the crowds can't be quite too, you know, too, too big, you know, except for in Mexico City where like the Plaza Mayor is gigantic. Anyway, um, that's the ways that they're different. Uh, let's see, I, maybe I should just stop there. I, I don't no, think no, I've fine. come quite back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying. Now, given those two references as colonial cultures, which you've been working actively to try and overcome the shortcomings and the violence inherent in those uh, infrastructure plans, what are some of the most effective ways that you've seen uh, or that you've been able to implement for people to get together on a human scale and reassemble um, by transforming either places of gathering or creating ones where there weren't before? Okay. <clears throat> well, this is a really essential answer. The most effective thing is for people, God, however they get there, to seize their own power and start to act directly. Um, now, we have created ordinances that have seriously liberalized the relationship of local communities to their own public space. In cities across the continent, people are told they have no power in their own neighborhood, like to put in a speed bump or to put in a bench or, or a little free library or something out in the space between the sidewalk and the street. Certainly they can't do anything out in the street. Um, you know, and in our case, we now have legal structures that have been negotiated with the city council and the department of transportation that oversees something like 22,000 intersections in our city and something like 6,000 residential right of way miles. We now have, Ordinances that let people literally walk right outside and build shit without getting a permit. They're automatically permitted and insured simply by creating. So what we have there is the system actually saying, you know, we're going to be a real democratic mechanism and support your initiative. You, the resident, are now so powerful. You can do anything you want. And we will support you with the, the might of our, you know, of, of our, you know, joint sort of collaborative economy. That's an incredible change. But the answer to your question is basically to realize we were only able to accomplish all of that by forcing the bureaucracy and the political leadership to come to the table. Because when we tried to appeal to them and say, look, we have all these statistics that, that and, and all these goals and plans, we have all these benchmarks we've tried to establish for accomplishing sustainability and urban livability that, that require us to act locally in our own neighborhoods as place-based people. And the city would say, well, you know, that's never been done before, so we can't do it. So they're not responsive, usually, when you appeal to them collaboratively. So the answer to your question is, People have to do it anyway. Whether it is legal yet or not, people just have to do it. And believe it or not, Oliver, that's how you make it legal. Every single time. Well, we've broken many laws in this city. And, and, and not, not because we enjoy breaking laws. It's like, oh, God dang it, here we are again. Where they're not being responsive and they're forcing us to break the rules in order to change the rules. So then we'll do it again. 
And whether we're changing an energy code or a way that we're able to use public space or we're changing the way that um, you know, park re- regulations work, there's lots of different ways that you have to end up challenging the system. We've ended up being forced to do it on our own authority and having to stand there and have people get mad at us simply because they weren't able to be flexible enough or to care enough to say yes. I mean, honestly, when, when bureaucracy is remote and disinterested, and it almost always is because it is not place-based, and, and, and the system comes up against the needs of place-based people, you're going to always have that contradiction. Here's the difference. Place-based people care about each other. They see each other in the eyes. They come and go every day, even though, even though you know, you might come out of your house and say hi to your neighbor and not really get to know them because living and working have been disintegrated and you don't really get to work together. Still, you see each other enough. Your children might play together enough that at a certain point you talk and you care enough about your condition that you want to slow traffic to, you know, to make the streets safer for your children to be, to be near because they're out there on their bikes or something or, you talk to each other and you're concerned about the state of the world and it's not good enough to just be getting it pre-digested from the papers. Like you want to put in composting systems or you want to put in district energy systems. And at a certain point you have some professionals maybe living next to each other or a carpenter lives next together, next to a caregiver. They start to get ideas that, that make them feel like they could accomplish it with their skills and talents. And so, you know, you, you start to like think that, hey, maybe my capability could be applied here. And of course, the bureaucracy is unresponsive. There's a lot of reasons for that. People have all kinds of ways of understanding the bureaucracy, but they're not fundamentally place-based. They're not connected to the real issues. They're connected to their own neighborhood. So if you remind them, you know, like one time I had to say to a bureaucrat, you know what we're doing? We're trying to help you too because your neighborhood doesn't have a freaking public square either. And they're like, well, okay, that's true. You know, and then we actually got them to start to relate to why we, we needed to create a public square ourselves. And then they began to help us to legalize it. So we're always navigating this disparity between the fact that communities are place-based and bureaucracy and political systems aren't. They all come from kind of everywhere else to come together to do job descriptions and they don't really get to gel as a, in a sense of community themselves. So every time a place-based community sort of stands up and has to challenge the regulations and, and, and force the rules to change, it even benefits the bureaucrats and politicians that are opposing them. That's, I'm, I'm actually getting rather tired of always having to navigate this, this ridiculous, um, this ridiculous set of contradictions, but now we know how to do it and we're successful every time, but it always has to start. This is the answer to your question. Over and over again, people have to reclaim their power, face the paradoxes that they already are inhabiting and just say to themselves, no one else can freaking have my power. Refuse to ask permission anymore for things that are simply common sense. You know, speaking I, of Guatemala, one of my favorite examples of this is in Guatemala where, you know, you, you might have some teenager driving through the neighborhood too quickly, very frequently. And then somebody says, all right, let's get out the two by four with nails in it again. And they drag it across the street in order to force cars to slow down. And you can only get the two by four pulled out from in front of your car. If you donate some money into a can for the local school fund, like neighborhoods in Guatemala literally affect serious traffic calming by themselves under their own authority 
without having to ask permission, and a two-by-four with some nails in it is enough to slow down all the cars. And you wouldn't dream of doing that in the U.S. today because we're so we're so 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 cowed um, by the authorities. But in Guatemala, not that way. It's, it was amazing to witness that kind of self-authorization. Yeah, I have to say I witnessed a lot of those types of self-government acts in the various communities that I had a chance to interact with while I lived there, and a lot of it comes from the fact that you know, larger governmental bodies are quite ineffectual the further you get away from the capital city. And given that we were about five hours drive most of the time that I was living in Guatemala, you start to feel the effects of government much, much less, especially as you get into further out rural areas. And seeing how uh, local alcaldes and other kind of community leaders found ways, uh, creative ways to, yeah, exactly, sort of enforce laws, but also create a sense that, you know, we're in this together and punishment isn't so much as getting rid of the problem as finding a way of sort of dealing with it in-house. And I've been fortunate enough to see pretty inspiring examples of that all over the world. But to go back to something that you were kind of touching on and somewhat dancing around is this idea of becoming people of place again. And I've heard it sort of explained in a number of different ways, perhaps re-indigenizing oneself as well. Give me an idea of how one can start to cultivate a mindset of getting back into their own power and understanding what it is that we should consider our rights as citizens and as members of communities so that we can actually think outside of the infrastructure that we were born into. And many of us, much like a fish does not realize that it's swimming in water, we don't realize uh, that there are many other ways to live, given just how prolific this type of infrastructure is. Boy, that's such a great question. Thanks for asking that question. I mean, asking me to talk about it. Well, I have a lot of lived experience that can can help with this. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that for a lot of us, we we feel like we have to. Um, kind of understand everything before we can act or before we can know what to do. And I just want to advise people listening to this that um, I think the best that you can do is come to a point of action because you'll never figure it all out. You have to kind of, and, 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 and <clears throat> I totally, I totally understand that, that kind of desperate desire to, um, to have a framework. I think what helps me to just, um, really, God, I got to this place where I absolutely committed to the ground that I was standing on. And I almost had to laugh because if, you know, if you were to ask me in the abstract, Mark, where would you like to live the rest of, rest of your life? Where would you, where would you stand your ground for your, you know, for your village culture? I would have either said, you know, my, the ground, the land of my Celtic ancestors, I shall return to that, that place um, in Lakeland of, of England. I, uh, I might have said that, or I might have said, you know, I'm going to go to an island in Thailand because uh, it's the most beautiful place I can imagine. But where it was, was actually one of the most mundane um, choices I possibly could have made in the world. Uh, a typical colonial grid neighborhood where I myself had grown up. Um, that was where I was the moment that I realized that the ultimate revolution and the, and, and the finding of my power would be to stand my ground permanently in a place and just hammer on that location 
with all my power and, and, have, and create a continuity of relationship over time to the people and to the environment and just keep affecting change and affecting change from there. Um, but, you know, it was, in a, it was in kind of the last place I would have thought I would have made that commitment, the very place where I grew up, that I was kind of wanting to escape. And it has really worked out perfectly in a lot of ways. Um, it's very mundanity makes it, you know, and repetition and, and, and like it's sameness is a perfect context for generating prototypes that can help people in all of these other conditions that are really very much the same, um, you know, to inspire them to make change themselves. So I guess what I'm saying is for anybody listening here, um, I would recommend that to just get to the point where you, uh, you decide to commit and you won't know all the same things I know. You'll just know what, you know, you'll know what you know, um, but you can know this, like you can ask yourself this question and come up with your own answer. Like when in the freaking world am I finally going to be home? Am I always going to keep dreaming of a better place? Like, you know, once I, once I have enough money, I'll sell this place or I'll stop renting this place and I'll, I'll go live in a co-housing community or eco-village outside of town or I'll move to another country to escape this crass capitalism or, you know, whatever your dream might be. For myself, it was just this moment where I was like, aha, I see. Committing to place, calling myself a villager. Like, what I did was I just was like, I shot my tap root, my tap root, tap root down into the planet in that moment. I was like, oh my God. I just need to commit to somewhere and set in my roots and hold the ground. At that time, I would have these dreams like of a storm, like that, that I was a tree and I kept trying to hold soil and the storm was blowing the soil away from my roots. Mm. And uh, I kept trying to grab particles of, of ground to aggregate it back. And uh, the storm was relentless and it was hopeless, and then another plant would somehow come along and its roots would join with mine and we would start to be able to hold some soil. And it was literally a metaphor for what was going on in my neighborhood. Like just as soon as we were building community and all these people within four square blocks knew each other with our first intersection guerrilla project, as soon as we knew each other, then we saw that people were moving. And then we were like, oh my God, this is happening all the time. And we knew, we don't even know it because we don't even know each other, that everyone's always moving. Like Americans move every four to seven years. And we could see it happening right in our own experience. And that was empowering. It was demoralizing, but it was also empowering. Like we've got to stop moving. You know, we've got to hold our, you know, hold our ground together. And so, you know, the consequences of holding our ground have been things like, you know, new, new civic ordinances, like I was saying, to make it so that everyone across the city can revolutionize their own relationship to the right-of-way, um, opening up pathways within the blocks to connect everyone internally. So you've been really decompartmentalizing the grid of isolation and turning it into a landscape of connection. Lots and lots of food is being grown all over the place, places for children to play. We've stabilized the community so almost no one moves anymore. People have studied us and published reports in health journals. Basically, crime has plummeted, and uh, people are mentally and physically healthier. 
But the main thing is the project then has replicated across the continent in like more than 100 cities. And we don't even know anymore how many cities. So by standing our ground, and I'm like, I'm standing my ground. I'm inviting other people to stand their ground. By standing your ground and claiming your place, you also claim your power. You know, if you say that you have a relationship to place and you start to act from a place of connection, um, it leads you to do things that are positively revolutionary and sometimes outside of or within the rules. And there is no more powerful place to be coming from if you want to change your city and offer prototypes and stories to inspire other people than that. Mark, I think it's remarkable that it seems that as I get better at doing these interviews, I end up talking with people at just the right time to give me some confidence in difficult decisions that I've made. And if anybody who's listening now has sort of followed the genesis of this podcast, they've, hear, they've heard me go through everything from like kind of being a little bit uprooted and uh, being an apprentice at a friend of mine's in Guatemala to like co-investing on a farm and really feeling like I finally had found my home. And then also the displacement that I felt as that arrangement became, uh, I mean, it wasn't, we weren't all going in the same direction and I decided to move again, but I represent exactly that generation that you're talking about. I've moved, man, I can't even count how many times I've basically been traveling independently for almost 14 years now. And we're literally having this conversation about four days into me settling into the spot that I've decided is going to be my home and where I'm going to stand my ground. Um, and so many of the things that you've just said resonate with this journey that I've gone on and realizing that there's no place that you can decide on going that's going to be perfect. Certainly not in how damaged and disconnected our world has become at this point. And if you're looking for the perfect place, you won't find it. You will constantly keep moving. But if you decide that you're going to be sort of the change or the conduit for the good things that you find missing in the place that you decide to go home or that you decide to stand your ground on, then you actually have a chance at creating where and how you want to live. And sort of with that said, I would love to hear about some of the projects that you and your team have worked on that have started to create that meaningful change within the neighborhoods that you've been able to interact with and work in. Could you say that last sentence again? That was a beautiful, beautiful uh, response there to all that I had said. Say that last <laughs> sentence again, question. Yeah, well, here, let's, let's explore some of the projects that you and your team have worked on within the, the communities that you've had the chance to interact with. I know you've done designs for co-housing developments within, I think it was in Portland. You've worked with city repair at sort of rejuvenating those intersections like you had mentioned earlier. What are some yeah. of the projects that you feel have taught you the most about sort of the steps that can start to reconnect these disconnected infrastructures? Okay, I'll, I'll I'll kind of talk about small things and giant, uh, larger things and giant things. By all means. Um, let's see. Well, smaller things, smaller things that uh, kind of are doable at a community scale can happen at you know places like in, in you know neighborhoods um, or schools or or, or people's businesses. Uh, I'm thinking right now of this 
installation that I've been um, helping people to do some maintenance on recently. Uh, it seems like such a small thing. It's in someone's front yard. Um, it's an earthen masonry project that's very, very sculptural. Uh, and it's inspired by this this epiphany that a man had. Um, he was reading an article. His name was Fata. And he was reading an article about um, about how the majority of what we see in our society is 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 kind of historically it's been um, created by enacted or decided upon or created or literally physically built by white men between like thirty five and, and seventy five or something like that. Um, and after this, this uh, after Fata got re- done reading this article, he was really upset. He was like. My God, the spectrum of possibility is really in in my own experience has been limited by um, men who are traditionally emotionally stunted and, and and their capacity to express and to emote is limited. We're we're actually living within the mental framework of what they think is possible or or appropriate in the world. And part of the article that he read um, was suggesting that perhaps a more sustainable reality would be more inclusive and expressive of a broader sort of spectrum of, of human possibility. So it, it happened that Fata was connected to this family, um, a mother and a couple of little girls across the street. He just marched across the street and he asked the little girl who was about six, what she thought needed to happen in the world. He said, with all the changes that are happening in our city, what do you think needs to happen? What would you, what would make the world a better place? So this, this installation that he ended up building in his front yard is the vision of the little girl who um, was his friend. He facilitated the creation of it. He brought this um, fantastic builder from Canada, Pat Henneberry. He's kind of a legend. Natural a builder legend brought me. him to Portland. Yeah, one of my heroes. I was one of my first guests on this podcast. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Thank you. I don't know if you know, but Pat, you know, he's got Parkinson's disease now and it's very severe at this point. And I just saw him about a month ago and he's certainly um, not, not long for this world. So the restoration of that project right now is, is front burner for me. Um, situation. Anyway, uh, what was created looks like this giant wave inspired by this little girl's vision. I mean, part of the conversation that Fada had with her was that she always wished that she had a big sister who was a mermaid. So if you go to see this little gathering place, um, it's in the form of a wave with a, a lighthouse and a mermaid, and it's all made out of top. It's very Gaudi-esque, and it looks, uh, I mean, it does all the things that we want it to do. You know, it, 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 it quests the private edge of public space, and it says, instead of fortifying that edge or trying to delineate what's mine and what's, what's yours or what's not yours and what's mine, as most edges tend to do, um, it says, come across the edge, come into the embrace of this fabulous fantasy of a better world, of a more sculptural and inspiring story. And of course, it's modeling sustainability because it's made by human hands. You, you just, it's inescapable. It's the most beautiful, lovingly crafted place. It's in, the, in, this, in this completely fantastical form with this luminous roof floating overhead. Um, made out of parts and pieces from the ocean. 
So that's small, but it's actually gigantic because it provides an example for everyone living with that same mundane edge of private versus public. And it invites people to reconsider whether or not they'd like to invite people across the line or whether they'd like to fortify that line. I'm happy to tell you that project has contributed to, you know, something like 700 similar projects across this city. So it's just, you know, it seems small, but it's actually gigantic because it becomes a way of inspiring change everywhere where people live individually or with family um, and they contribute to that, you know, to either reinforcing the idea that we're all separate or that we're all connected and everyone can make a statement along their own personal edge. And frankly, I think that's how the world is going to change. It's to small acts that aggregate into a larger change. But it isn't just that project inspiring things. It, I mean, it's inspired politicians to make policy changes. It's inspired bureaucrats to become sympathetic and redirect transportation routes. Like the, the bike the bike route system comes close to that project in order to, you know, let people come visit it. So that's a small project, but it's gigantic in its impact. And it's actually a huge project because it was never about the thing. It was always about the consciousness of people. So I'm talking about something small, but it's really quite gigantic. Okay, then there's actually overtly gigantic things. Like lately, we've been working on climate resilience projects and um, worked on a team to redesign the entire watershed of Islay's Creek, which is the majority of San Francisco, and turn the urban sewer system into a water catchment system. So instead of trying to get rid of rain runoff and domestic and you know commercial and institutional effluent to instead install upstream intervention systems, black water and gray water systems everywhere. And then um, basically recreate all domestic and uh, institutional commercial landscapes and public right-of-ways so that we're catching and absorbing water and storing water by millions and millions of gallons in order to address the, um, the climate emergency, the, the extended drought in California, um, to capture all of this biomass and use it instead to regenerate landscapes and sequester carbon. And uh, so giant systemic change projects, in that case funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, um, they've been inspired after the Sandy Hurricane to realize the climate change is desperately real. And uh, we've gotten we've we've gotten to um, engage as permaculturists with them being specifically interested in what a permaculture team could contribute. So I don't know. That's huge. That's huge on design scales. Um, projects right, supposed I'm, to be driven. I'm so Go glad ahead. to hear that those types of organizations are taking a real look and putting money down on infrastructure projects that actually work towards regeneration and resilience rather than you know. Um, sort of putting the project or the the issue onto somebody else's plate or just getting rid of it, you know, starting to look at these as resources rather than destructive forces if managed properly. Yeah, it was very heartening. Um, at the same time, it was heartening to see that there was this um, bright light shining from within the context of, of Rockefeller in connection to city administrations. It was also um, very sobering um, because as we traveled around the Bay Area, we, we, we basically traveled for, I think, six weeks around the Bay Area meeting administer, administrators and uh, 
visiting different communities. And Rockefeller was uh, having us do workshops with all these, all these climate scientists and, and different specialists. Uh, we kept learning things from specialists that just somehow wasn't wasn't being absorbed and integrated by by political leadership or bureaucracies. So, for instance, we would go from a workshop in the morning with client Klaus Jacobs, who's like the, the the Einstein of climate scientists, and he's saying to us in the morning, "This whole thing, this whole this whole like uh, sea level rise danger, can go as high as 200 feet." And then in the afternoon, we're visiting Silicon Valley and listening to their their um, elected leadership saying, we're going to hold the line here. We're going to build a three-foot levee. We're going to stop climate change right here. And uh, I remember, you know, there's all of these architects and planners um, on all these teams. And they're, for the most part, really uncomfortable asking questions like reconciling the difference between what they heard in the morning and what they're seeing in the afternoon. So I'm always having to stand out like a sore thumb permaculturist asking uncomfortable questions. So I said to the administrator, well, you know, we just heard from our, our advisors that the, the problem is going to go at least 200 feet and uh, no, no, it could go as high as 200 feet. And supposedly if it goes 10 feet, it will destabilize so much about economy and um, and political culture that the next 190 feet will just happen without any ability to stop it. So I was like, you know, you guys must be hearing some of this. I mean, if you don't talk about it in the open, at least when you're having beers together after work as friends, do you talk about this stuff? And this administrator's just looking at me like I'm a space alien and he's like, you know, no, we don't talk about it. Mm. So everywhere we went, one of the things that we were learning is that on one hand, the Rockefeller Foundation representatives are saying to us, you know, the Bay Area is our greatest hope because it has the most um, ability to have political consensus and it has the most diversity of people and geographic kind of urban circumstances and landform. So we can provide prototypes for people all over the world. And on the other hand, then we're out in the afternoon learning that, yeah, there's some amount of political, you know, uh, kind of inclination in the Bay, but wholly unprepared um, in terms of facts and any kind of grasp on the scope of the problem. So uh, it was an illuminating process. I'm really glad for it. I'm totally tooled up to work on projects of this kind. Um, but at the same time, uh, it was, it was, it was sobering. Yeah, it would seem. Now, one of the things that I know that you've explored with your teams and such is the, the problem of displaced people within this country. And many of them refer to them as homeless people. You've worked with yeah. homeless communities and development of bringing dignity back to these uh, settlements as this becomes an increasingly big problem, especially in our urban areas. Can you give me some insights on what you've learned in the process of trying to understand how this problem continues to de de uh, evolve in our country? And what are some of the solutions or at least hopes that you found in infrastructure that can include all people? Well, speaking of all people, um, I was in Denver, as in Boulder, um, 
couple of years ago and working with homeless people there and doing some design charrettes for, for houseless villages, tiny home villages. This is a project I've been working on since 1999, so 20 years into this, really working hard on on replicating. So you, you used the word dignity. Um, our first village was named Dignity Village, and it's still going strong and uh, has been providing assistance to communities all over the country to um, be able to create similar prototypes. So it's it's very exciting. But when I was in Denver, um, I heard from a homeless person speaking at an event that uh, Einstein's, Albert Einstein's granddaughter is a homeless person living in Denver. And, uh, you know, you hear something like that and it's like, okay, you know, how much more convincing do people need to understand that um, this is really an economic issue or, you know, it's, 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 it's very complex. It's very complex. Um, but I think it's, it's too easy for people to continue to do this same stuff about marginalizing people based on their projections that people are too lazy or they just don't want to work or, you know, what are they have a mental health problem in the case of Einstein's granddaughter, probably she's wandering around sitting there having epiphanies about, you know, the relationship of light and space. And uh, she can't be bothered to get a job at 7-Eleven because she's you know, too busy counting stars or something. Seriously, when, in my work over these last 20 years, I have met so many brilliant people who probably would not be living in the streets if they lived in a society that would embrace them for their qualities and their, their talents. Um, I've also met people who, who won't suffer the indignity of trading their time for money um, because life is too interesting. So I've met people who are intensely artistic and uh, they live outside. I'm just going to give you a bunch of different thoughts. I mean, Oregon Public Broadcasting, National Public Radio, ran a series a couple of years ago on the um, surprising percentage of people who have nomadic ancestry that live out in the streets. When I heard this series, <clears throat> I was thinking about the um, that story in the Bible, which is basically just this allegory about the conflict between, well, the rise of the city-state and, and colonialism and its its hostility toward all things local, all, all local cultures. So, you know, Cain, whose name basically means city-state, kills his brother, who's, you know, Abel, whose name basically means nomad. What we have is this hostility um, toward the ephemeral toward, toward alternative forms of culture and colonialism basically needs everyone to be nailed down to ground to pay for their space, to fund the society. And we've basically outlawed an entire paradigm, uh, a way of being. A lot of people out in the streets apparently have a proclivity for being nomadic. And we're telling them that they have nowhere. There's no ground for them to sleep in the world simply because we've decided to outlaw the very phenomena of being nomadic. This is so profoundly unjust, so profoundly ignorant and criminal. And it's just one, one aspect of homelessness, just one dimension of the conversation. There's another thought on my it's mind. As complex as each individual. Truly, truly. Who knows why Einstein's grandmother and granddaughter would be homeless? Who knows what's happened in, in her life to make this happen? 
Uh, and, and, you know, as I've been working on this and meeting people personally, it goes from being a, like a conceptual project where I'm doing it for different reasons. Like, gosh, all of these houses, villages are prototype for carbon reduction, how exciting. You know, for me as a, as a design nerd, one of the biggest motivations is like, I get to just relish the, re, you know, this experience of regenerating urban form over and over again and witnessing the playing out of settlement patterns, which is one of the most, like people think that, you know, when they think about design, they think about forms and objects and products and architecture. The ultimate design is to witness people collaborating together to create urban form, to create settlement patterns that like evidence how they move in space and how they relate to each other, how they respond to climate and light, to wind and rain and then alchemize the material around them into a habitat where they find shelter, that's the ultimate gig for, for human design. And, uh, you know, that's what we mean by permaculture, of course, um, but we rarely think of it in terms of urban form because permaculturists mostly focus, you know, on domestic systems and planting guilds and things like that, but it, it applies to all scales. I don't know, thinking about homelessness, um, I'm, I'm learning constantly. Like the other day, uh, there was an article released um, in on the internet. Uh, there was a study done, I think, in Portland, um, that for every hundred dollar average increase in rent across the city, homelessness increases by fifteen percent. That is not oh, you... No, it isn't. Like that tells us. When I, and here's another thing related to that. When I was in Oakland a couple of years ago doing a workshop on colonialism and, and uh, gentrification. I learned from one of the participants and economists that um, the more that we allow, this is, this is like, this is something to really, really take, take, take into consideration and give a lot of thought to. The more we allow the economic disparity to grow, the more that we have people amassing wealth whose only interest in wealth is more wealth. And wealthy people tend to keep so much of it available, just so much of it available for them to be able to use that's fluid. For the most part, they bank it in investments. Investments most often take the form of some kind of real estate development. So if you have all of this cash out there that needs to be invested in order to make more money, it causes the acceleration of gentrification because you're basically building all these market rate housing units in order to provide an increasing return mm-hmm. on investment. So the more we allow the, 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 the disparity to grow, the faster gentrification accelerates. And all of that, of course, contributes tremendously to homelessness. We have a madness going on right now. I think one of the antidotes is for people to realize um, that people in the streets all around them are maybe one or two degrees removed from them in terms of relationships. I have actually experienced that. I've actually met people that are the children of like my father's and mother's own friends, people that I went to school with, but that then I meet who are out in the streets and I learned something, you know, that happened to them in the course of their lives that I was close to myself and I didn't realize what had happened to them. I've seen people run into each other in a car and get mad at each other and in my own neighborhood and start to fight 
only to be pulled apart by their wives saying things like, don't you realize like who you are? You guys used to be friends in school, you know, but they're so, they're so far from remembering each other because of isolation or lack of continuity in their lives that they don't even realize that, that they just finally had a chance to meet their old friend. But unfortunately it took a car accident to do it. I'm going on and on about paradox here, but um, I think fundamentally for us to look at other people out in the street and just call them mere homeless people and treat them as if they're invisible pariahs or something is a terrible, terrible um, state of mind for, for us all. It's not just terrible for the homeless people. Like, for us to walk around in such ignorance, being oblivious to our fundamental connection to other people around us and all that we share. So I swear, even if they're homeless and you've got a home, you're still cultural refugees. Like the fact that you're even alive in the 21st century is a testament to your resilience that you've survived human, you know, through all of these convolutions of human history. I would rather walk around appreciating the fact that we're still here than projecting onto each other and saying, oh, you're of a lesser class because you have less than me. That's, uh, that's like playing life as if it's a Monopoly board game or something. I love that you reminded me that we're only maybe one, perhaps two steps removed from people of a situation of homelessness. Uh, I was reminded of this recently um, when there was an emergency in my family and one of my brothers had to go to the hospital. Now, it wasn't terribly major and he got out of there just fine, but realizing that he doesn't have health insurance and a simple ambulance ride could put him into enough debt that he couldn't pay his rent. I mean, so many people these days are a very slim financial fall from having their entire livelihoods at risk. And goodness knows it's like that in so many other parts of the world as well. And as we become more and more disconnected from our communities, we also disconnect from our our systems of support. And yeah. so few people know their neighbors. Um, I realized in that emergency that though we weren't terribly far from home, um, without a phone to make a call or, you know, like I don't have any phone numbers memorized in my head anymore. And I couldn't tell you the phone number of the neighbors or some of the close friends of many of the people that I visited. You know, we've removed ourselves yeah. from having that as a part of us and have outsourced it to our electronic devices, which if those go like, I mean, anybody listening to this now, how many phone numbers, how many addresses do you have memorized anymore? You know, who could you reach out to if you didn't have an electronic connection like that? And I think it's very important to remember that we are not so much different from people of those situations. And perhaps one or two unfortunate circumstances could put us there as well. And it definitely for me has helped to reconnect an amount of sympathy and compassion for people in those situations. Yeah. Well, here's another thought related to that. If we don't sit there using our brains to um, file away phone numbers or addresses or to be able to calculate basic math problems, um, it becomes a, a, an atrophied function of our mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, like we were biologically um, evolved to remember phone numbers specifically, but we, we have evolved with um, this intense capacity, incredible capacity for pattern observation and for integration um, for, of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of detailed information. And the more that we outsource that to um, 
remote systems that we interact with with the push of a button, I think the stupider we become. You know, frankly, we also know um, that if if your mind is not engaged in complex exercises, you become susceptible early in your life to things like dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. So there's a lot of motivations for actually doing it. But, you know, I, I, I do that kind of stuff for an aesthetic experience. I don't want to not know things. Sure. It's kind of weird to me. Like, I'll be in a meeting um, and someone will, there'll be some sort of need to understand something and I'll, uh, I'll calculate it in my mind right there. And I'll say, oh, well, it's this number. And um, what's approximately this number? Uh, or I'll remember a phone number, and someone, some younger person, will just be shocked that I that I can. I'm really glad to be <clears throat> old enough to remember, you know, rotary phones, times before yeah. cell phones, times times before computers, because uh, it really gives you context. I feel feel really scared for people who haven't known life before these systems. Well, I found it really useful because, I mean, I don't remember some of those things that you've mentioned, but I remember like cassette tapes and dialing phone numbers that you had to remember in your head. And yeah. if, for nothing else, I think it just serves to remind us that before all of the convenience of technology that most of us enjoy and rely on now, people were fine. <laughs> like life went on and we didn't have to be connected in the way that we are now to live richly. And so I like to, you know, from my experience, practice other ways of living occasionally to make sure that I could still do without it if I had to. But I actually want to reconnect this to a couple of subjects that kind of are coalescing here. And you've talked about this idea of becoming people of place or re-indigenizing ourselves. And I had a previous uh, conversation with Bill Reed, who is one of the co-founders of the LEAD building certification systems and one of the principles at the Regenesis network. And he talked yeah, also, know him. yeah, he also talked a lot about understanding the story of a place before starting to do any kind of design or make suggestions on a project. And I know through your work, this is something that you put a lot of effort into. It's understanding the story of the place and the context in which you're working before you start to put pen to paper. And so I guess the question would be, what are like how do you first start to gather information what what do you look to inform you as as to what is the story of the place and the context that you're working in before you start to design a great question jeez okay well a lot of times um well even if i even if i'm not asked to show up and help with a design project this is something i'm always doing as i move through the through a city or something, um, I'll just stop and stand and I will feel, I will listen. And I don't try to necessarily hear words or get specific images. I just stop and let my body and, and my, my ears, my mind feel and sense and let it come into me. Um, and then I know it will integrate itself. The information will integrate in me and then come out as an expression. So, you know, um, I would say that that's a permaculture behavior. It's not specifically outlined in any manual, um, except to say that you, you know, you, you practice thoughtful and protracted observation. 
but the observation, um, you know, that I do with my eyes and my body, walking paces, noticing slope, um, paying attention to the direction of the wind or the orientation of the sun, I, I do that. But I also just stand and I feel and I listen because I figure, you know, even though I don't particularly believe in anything per se, uh, in a mystical and spiritual way, I also know that there's more going on than I can understand. So I don't, I don't, I don't use belief. I, I, it's, I, I don't know. It sounds paradoxical, perhaps, but I know things are going on beyond any sort of scale and depth that I can actually decipher. Um, and at the same time, uh, I don't specifically ground myself in one interpretation of how it's all working. So I'll just sit there and sense. Sometimes I'm sensing um, ancestors or descendants who are, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, wow, I kind of get a sense of people being back in time, blowing kisses forward into now, like wishing us luck or people from the past encouraging us to do our best and try as hard as we can because of how things turned out in the future. So I'm on a site doing a design. Um, I'm do, I do that. I just stand and I, and I listen and I just try to absorb it without interpreting it mentally. And then I let it come through in the insights I have as I'm working with people um, to work on a design. And even then I'm listening, I'm constantly listening and I'm listening acutely to other people, you know, um, the other people that are working with me on a project, um, they might not be as practiced at listening. So it's very important for them to know whether they're practiced or not, everyone needs to know that they're heard. So I'm constantly practicing um, a kind of a social technology or a social architecture of being receptive and inclusive. And, you know, they're thinking that I'm being the leader, but that what they don't maybe understand yet is my way of leading is to um, summarize, you know, to let, let everyone talk and say all the things that I would probably say anyway, but to let them say it. And then I'm listening for what, doesn't get heard. So as I'm standing in a group, you know, there's plenty of intelligence there. So they'll be talking about the direction of the wind or they'll be talking about the slope. And I'm not there to try to correct anyone. But if I hear people, you know, kind of not seeing something, um, you know, I might, I might, you know, ask them a question that helps them to see it. But try not to be editing other people. Um, but I'm just there to listen. And the more that I listen, the, and the richer I get. The more I listen, the more I actually hear. Before I was a good listener, there was so much that I wasn't hearing. Mm. So I think, um, you know, practicing observation of my own feelings as I'm in that interaction. So I guess I'm starting on a, a kind of a sort of a, a deeper way of having insight here. But um, I absolutely agree with Bill. Uh, this wouldn't necessarily make sense to some, some you know, clients. Uh, who aren't interested in respecting what has happened there. But I, I think it's to, it's to people's detriment to not care. I mean, for one thing, physically, you need to, like, maybe you're on a landscape where everything's kind of been just wiped out. It seems as if it's all been wiped out. They've wiped out the vegetation. They've removed the fauna. They've erased the cultural patterns from before. And so it doesn't really matter to look at what was there before. Let's just build something new. Well, that kind of that kind of approach leads to things like sinkholes coming out of nowhere because you didn't bother to realize that 
in the violence that happened on the land, um, ways that water used to move um, has been obscured. Like you, you've, you've filled a bunch of land where water used to flow. Well, it's still flowing under that land. You might put in a parking lot or a building and then have the parking lot or building fall into a hole because you didn't bother to find out that there's actually a stream flowing there. And besides, you know, it really matters if there had been a village there. You're building on bones. You're building on sacred gathering places. Um, you need to understand what's there. Uh, it might affect you spiritually. Um, probably would affect you spiritually, especially if you, you know, at the front end, if you don't care, then not being a caring person who doesn't bother to, to know the story of a place is going to make you have um, a much less rich experience and you'll be more, more prone to make stupid choices in the rest of your life. So for the sake of one's own richness, and I say this to developers frequently, like what is your legacy? Is all that you care about, like going in, tearing down forests, building something, and then cashing out? Because you can't take it with you. Are you, you know, you have the opportunity to build a legacy and it won't cost you any more. You'll have a richer experience and people will actually like you. Like, how, how do you lose in that equation? So caring about what it used to be um, is a fundamental way of, you know, connecting to the meaning in your own life. Not even to start talking about the sustainability of a project. So I think Bill's absolutely right. And he's talking about all the same things I am when I say all those things. Yeah, I mean, at this point, part of my job is just to see the similarities, the connectivities in these conversations that hopefully um, create a pattern that someone can suss out of the larger body of work that this creates. And certainly of people who have more experience and have been doing this longer, I've noticed that they really shy away from giving specific advice about techniques or design methodologies, and they really focus on all of them talking about putting in the time to listen and to observe, almost to a T. Like everybody who I really look up to and who has been doing this for any period of time, that's the most common um, thread that I've noticed from, from their advice. Now, before we wrap it up, this is something that I'm starting to ask more and more people, and I would imagine that you're going to have a good answer. With all of these challenges and seemingly insurmountable, uh, I guess, issues of our time, what keeps you going personally? I know that when we spoke last, you had just become a father and two years on, you've got a two-year-old kid and that's a big part of your life. Is that one of the, the biggest influences and in what motivates you moving forward or is there a larger sort of, um, I guess, motivation behind what you do? Well, having a, a really brilliant little two-year-old daughter is like a lightning bolt of, of beauty and inspiration that kind of shocks through everything that's going on, even, even the sort of fascist political um, insurgency that we see kind of trying to rise around the world. For me, um, on a personal level, she, she cuts right through that in terms of making me laugh and smile. Uh, but it also, you know, then it pretty quickly turns to heartbreak too, because I, I'm struggling to try to understand how or imagine how I am going to dovetail her, her innocence into an awareness of the state of the world. She's, um, 
heard this term strong woman. She keeps running around saying, I'm a strong woman. <laughs> and then declaring what she can accomplish. Uh, so, yeah, I know she's here to help. I'm pretty sure that's why she's here. So she's helping me a lot. Um, but I've got a lot of help. I've, I've had, I'm really lucky to have had um, kind of activist and artist mentors through my life that have always helped me to see that, that challenges are creative opportunity. Um, we certainly have the greatest creative opportunity, plethora of compounding creative opportunities, more than we could have ever asked for, um, you know, happening in our time. But that's, it's, it's both, you know, sort of heart, heart rending and exciting at the same time. Like we've never been quite as globalized. There hasn't been as much, you know, like mutual understanding. For some people, it, it, it comes in the form of, you know, noticing that there's a lot of Thai restaurants around and, and Mexican food where before there were only hamburger joints. And, you're, you know, you're, you're seeing that, that there's this kind of cross-pollinization of culture, um, whether it's literally represented by immigrants or people who have traveled to other countries and found an appreciation. Sometimes it starts just by being able to taste each other's, you know, culinary traditions. Um, but there's so many other different ways and expressions um, where people have been coming into contact and the world is starting to understand more about its story and whether that's through genetics or, or um, the beneficial aspects of archaeology and history and learning so much about what we've been going through. And so I think we're in a really portentous time, you know, and all of that of course is threatening to the supremacist culture that um, has been persisting for so long and presenting us with so many of these challenges, really challenges by design. I have to say, now that I know, I know that most of the problems we have in our society are not a, like we're always saying things like, oh, I'm only human. Um, I think that's missing. That's really missing the point. To be a human being, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're imperfect and we're failed. And I, and I love to understand, you know, I give myself a break all the time by knowing that, um, Really, as a human being, I have to really see everything as an experiment. And I have to be ready to make a lot of mistakes, uh, but not to get down on myself about that. And to understand our, our creative proclivities are really, in some ways, um, kind of divine-like. Like to be able to to express the way that we do, and to be able to to take challenges and turn them into cultural evolution is an incredible, incredible capacity that we have. Uh, yeah, and but the thing I was going to say that I've realized is that really all, all of our problems are are a consequence of design choices that people make. The oligarch class has created homelessness. The oligarch class has been misogynistic from the beginning. They create a context where domestic violence can thrive. You know, basically, you know, based upon taking men and turning them against their own families to make them dominators or to turn them against their own communities and make them capitalizers. These systems aren't accidental and they end up making the people who think that they're profiting off of it the most crazy and the most miserable of all. So, you know, I understand that as a designer, um, I just hope that we figure out a way to, to address these design issues um, in time so that we can continue into the future. But I'm excited by the challenge, even as my heart is breaking, 
because of all of the unnecessary pain. But here's like another piece of the answer to your question. I've gone out and I literally have asked people, what is wrong with my country and what is wrong with me? And what I've got is the most beautiful, like empathetic sisterhood and brotherhood back in return. One time I was in a Mayan village and I was like, can you tell me what is wrong with me? Can you tell me what is wrong with my country? And they're like, first of all, you need to realize like I'm sitting there apologizing for basically European invasion. And this person's like, no, you cannot take this upon yourselves. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Look at what Europe has done to this place. Look at what we have done. And he's like, no, you only did this to us because it was done to you so long ago. You don't even know who you are anymore. Your people don't know who you are. You don't remember the villages that were destroyed. You don't know that you were attacked and subsumed. You were turned into people would go out and attack other people at the cost of your own, you know, humanity and experience of family. And I'm sitting there crying. I can't even believe the kind of love that this person is giving back to me and all this understanding. And then he explains the colonial grid and he says, go back home to where you grew up and stand in a street intersection. Look at all the lines that are so flat and straight and see how this is a huge design construct city by city, everywhere, people are isolated by design. So, um, yeah, I got to have an insight on the way that design can sometimes be monumental and, and uh, you know, enormous in the sweeping um, scale of ambition to control, to eliminate cultures and replace them with a giant kind of development concept that just will benefit the few. So I guess, you know, you asked me what keeps me going. Part of it is outrage. Like I see that we're, every one of us, including rich people, are swept up in something so big we no longer understand it. And it's so, pain, so painful to us, maybe especially rich people, because they end up being impoverished spiritually, um, that it's beyond comprehension and it's tragedy is beyond our, our ability to, to grasp. So there's that. I'm motivated by that. And on the other hand, on the other side of the tragedy, and this is something that this same Mayan person said to me, he held up his hand. He's like, this side of my palm is everything that's wrong that obscures us from seeing what's on the other side of my palm. And he turns his hand around. He's like, on this side is to see the luminous reality that we are on a floating garden sphere. The only life that we know of in all the cosmos is here. This is home. We are home. We are all home together. And if we can see that everything is here and that everything that we need is provided for to us as a gift and an expression of love, if we can see that we are all leaves on the tree of life and somehow act from a place of seeing our larger self with each other, then we will be okay and we will thrive. And to let glimpse, you know, the possibility of actually inhabiting that awareness and taking care of each other and going to new levels of aesthetic appreciation and experience with each other. Like that, Oliver, that's what's keeping me going, is to see what's on the other side of all of this despair, is all of this, um, like, promise, birthright. That, uh, that inspires me constantly. All the way till I'm dust, I'll be inspired by that. Because I already know that stuff. Like, oh my God. We live in the most amazing place. That gets me up every morning. Even the tragedy. That's the thing. 
Like we go to Mars sifting through dust looking for one organic molecule, you know, and then we come back here and we're like, you know, all around us, we're surrounded by evidence of the miraculous. And I feel that pretty much every day. It's, 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 it would be a hell of a lot better if, if billions of us were seeing that together because that cumulative celebration would be the best thing we ever experienced. So that keeps me going. To, to have that with each other. Well said. Yeah, I I deeply resonate with that. I really like the way that you put it. And I think it's a marvelous transition now to have you tell our listeners on that note how they can get in touch with you or your organizations and learn more about your work. Sure. Okay, well, you know, there's different websites. I think the best thing to do is to come to Portland. Um, I invite you all to Portland. At the end of May and the beginning of June for our 10-day annual um, gigantic permaculture burn raising, it's called the Village Building Convergence. It happens every year. It'll happen next year uh, for 10 days. And come to Portland and see how sort of like 40 simultaneous projects can happen over the course of 10 days. And everyone's organizing it themselves and revolutionizing their, 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 their environments as expressions of urban permaculture. So come be a part of that. And we actually have a school during that time. So people can actually come and learn together and then go out and be part of the projects. And then at night come and dance and sing and learn and, and, you know, express and eat together at a central village that we create. So it's really taking like the idea of festival culture to bring it into the city to just blossom in the forms of permanent change. So that, you can find out more about that at villagebuildingconvergence.com or at cityrepair.org. And uh, you could also go to, um, let's see, you could also go to planetrepair.org. There's a little bit there. That's where City Repair began. Um, and then you can also, for our design, for design projects from a, you know, a different organization where we're doing things like villages by and for people um, contending with Asperger's, or autistic permaculture-based autistic village, um, and lots and lots of prototypes. Building entire buildings made out of recycled materials, all kinds of natural building projects, all kinds of ecological, social ecological projects. Go to communitexture.net, and uh, you can see lots of that's larger scale designs. City repair is more like the systemic change involving massive amounts of social culture doing projects that are prototypical. Communitexture's funded projects, larger at physical scales, not as much social fusion, but um, still lots of participatory culture. So those two are sisters. They inhabit the same building where I am right now. Um, and they're part of a network of people that are all working on change. Excellent. And yeah, for those of you who are interested in that um, village building convergence, so many of the natural builders that I've focused on and, and interviewed here on this podcast have done small workshops or, you know, little tutorials during that building convergence. And a lot of you can participate in those. I think, you know, through that website that you mentioned, you can sign up to some of them early on. And it's a great way to get a little crash course in practical projects that can get your hands dirty on a lot of different types of natural building materials as well. Beautiful. Excellent. Mark, again, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you and 
Uh, I've loved the content and the, the projects that you've been publishing and putting out online for the last couple of years. It's been a big inspiration for me. And the general dialogue that you help to create around compassionate understanding of place and identity that can overcome this violent infrastructure that many of us operate in is, uh, is a real inspiration to me. So I just wanted to thank you for that and for giving us your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for amplifying so many voices um, of, of change. All right. Well, you take care. We'll be in touch again soon. Okay. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.